You are listening to episode 76 of Paz de Chipotle. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food anthropologist, Mexican culture and gastronomy educator. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To find more information about my podcasts, publications and subscribe to my newsletter, simply go to the notes of this episode on your podcast app. Going way beyond recipe books, food history is a vast and rich field in which we can study a huge range of topics that help us explore the social, political and economic life, among many other areas and aspects of past societies. Reconstructing the social history of Mexico is a task that has occupied the work of several generations of researchers who have slowly pieced together a very dispersed amount of information that with the added challenge of our complex colonial past and the loss of enormous amounts of information, it has been a monumental job to say the least. Over the past year, here on the show, I have covered a variety of topics from exploring the little-known world of religious institutions in the colonial period, the history of Cinco de Mayo, a look into the traditional carnivals of Latin America, a special episode on Puebla, and an introduction to the history of bread and bakeries, and of course, Dia de los Muertos. Other topics have included individual foodstuffs like beans and pulque and the cultural meanings of cooking techniques in the indigenous world. Well, to close down the year and as a Christmas gift to you and honestly to me as well, I decided to explore the relationships between art, music and forms of socializing and the religious life of the Novo Hispanic society of Mexico between the 16th and the 18th centuries. There will also be, of course, a little bit of food and a lot of bread. And to do this, I decided to partner with none other than the multi-talented minstrel, gastronome and baker, an all-around amazing person that is Eliseo Lara, who has a BA in Literature and Language Studies from the Universidad del Claustro de Sor Juana in the city of Mexico. He then trained in classical singing at the National Institute of Fine Arts and later on, completed a diploma in professional pastry and baking at Mariku Center of Culinary Arts, specializing in Mexican traditional pastries, which is a passion he shares through in-person classes that is pre-pandemic and we hope he resumes soon. And during the pandemic, he really has built a gorgeous online community of international home bakers celebrating Mexican bread. 
Eliseo and I have shared and enjoyed our mutual love for Mexican gastronomic traditions, baking and Mexican early music for quite some time. Me as an avid listener and Eliseo as an actual singer. And after months of planning, we finally got together to talk and indulge in a range of topics from the artistic and musical life in New Spain. And we touched on painting, literature, theater and of course food. As ever in the episode's notes, you will find the links that we will mention uh, throughout this conversation. Also information about the music references that we presented, some books that you can read if you want to explore more about these subjects and all the details to contact Eliseo and book yourself an amazing baking adventure. Well then, a better wrap up things here and let's get started. I hope you enjoy this episode. So, finally, after so much planning, it's been years, and I kid you not, uh, of me looking so much forward having you on Passage Fotle. Eliseo, it's such a pleasure to finally have you here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Muchas gracias a ti. Thank you. It's, it's my pleasure, actually. Everyone's pleasure. <laughs> so uh, we've got so many things to cover. Absolutely indulge in our favorite topics about the life and art and wonderful things that happened in the colonial world here in Mexico. So just to sort of begin laying out uh, this scenario, uh, let's think that from the very beginning. Uh, of the newly founded Viceroyalty of New Spain, and we are talking 1521, so we are in the 16th century. This society was particularly interesting because it was quite hierarchical. So race, faith, and class were all these elements that defined the logic and the structure of, of this society that had a caste system that sort of organized everything. So at the top of this society uh, was this the, the Spain-born minority uh, that you know, they were called the, the Peninsulares, the, the people that were born in the Iberian Peninsula. And these people controlled the political, religious, and economic aspects uh, of, of this territory. Then below them were the Criollos. So they're children, literally, of Spanish parents. But these criollos were born here in New Spain. And then, obviously, the large and fast-growing mixed-race society from where we descend, <laughs> most of us, no? that is indigenous and Spanish and yep. everybody else all yeah. mixed together. This is like the, the biggest sort of uh, portion of, of this society. But then there were like 15 different more combinations of castas or mixed heritage people uh, that included those of mm. you know, African, Asian, and you know mixed European origins, all the possible combinations. So all of all of these things will determine a person's life and future in this society. No, that was it. Like you know, there was not much mobility. Like <laughs> so, there were certain things in this society that kind of regulated relationships, and one of these 
and it's going to be very important for, for all the things that we're going to discuss today, is religion. So religion as an institution and religion as, as a practice, like and all the tools that religious men and women have uh, to interact with society that played a key role at sort of regulating and also facilitating interactions. So the kind of early years and you know, maybe the first hundred years of the colonial period, it was very intense and very and very um, very complex because there was this dismantling of the indigenous world and a transition to a new regime, a new reality that meant that many practices changed, others disappeared and you know were replaced by new by new things, by new practices in every sense. So it's in this context when certain activities became really, really important in the religious festive calendar and the secular celebrations that allowed like the dissipation of certain cultural tensions. Because we can imagine that people were not, you know, like, hey, we were conquered <laughs> and everyone was happy about that. So there were a lot of a lot of uh, revolts and problems and uprisings and, you know, it's understandable. So these kind of practices of, of religious celebrations and, and forms of leisure is what facilitated you know, these outlets of expressions that were re- very important uh, for Spanish and also for indigenous people. So in the indigenous world, I mean, we know because of the codices and other texts, you know, first-hand accounts of, of religious men that in your city, in, in the city of Mexico, mm-hmm. former Tenochtitlan, there were many schools for the elite, for the children of this nobility, the, the Mexican nobility called Calmecac. And in these places, indigenous children and like teenagers, boys, were taught different musical skills, dancing, dancing and singing (laughs) because they were really important aspects of religious ceremonies. And I think you will tell us, but I think this is something that facilitated the work of friars and priests that created these new choirs and musical ensembles for cathedrals, you know, the the super big important uh, places, monasteries, nunneries, parishes because of this pre-existing tradition. So I think that it's in this context that the church became the biggest patron for music and for religious art and, and other uh, religious expressions, you know, that, and they offered a lot of money for these contracts for painters, for composers and musicians to produce creations, you know, like pieces, uh, musical pieces and, and paintings. Uh, that were used as tools, you know, of um, of religious indoctrination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, this is something that is not that present in our everyday life, like the the cultural and musical and artistic aspect of the colonial period. And there was this trend I remember in the old days when I was in college mm-hmm. in the nineteen nineties of noble Hispanic early music that had like a revival. Mm-hmm. No, in in Mexico, and it inspired many people, including including you, of course, and and many other, <laughs> to join vocal ensembles and play even ancient instruments. No, and there were groups like La Folia, uh, Capella Barroca, Ars Nova, um, Capella Novoistana, Concentus Harmonicus. You know better than me <laughs> more about these. <laughs> 
these <laughs> revival. So why don't you sort of uh, uh, take it from here and walk us through what it meant this this whole like scenario in the colonial period and why it became suddenly so uh, interesting in in our times again. Um, of course. Uh... Well, first, a little bit just to expand on what you were saying about the caste system. I think that um, it's a it's very interesting how it was formulated, but also how we are taught about it in schools in our modern day. Because um, this might be kind of interesting for um, everyone who is listening to this podcast, that uh, when we go to primary school, they teach us this caste system. And there was a specific, uh, specific um, painting that was just about the... Yeah, yeah. Pintura de castas, no? Yeah. Pintura de castas, aha. Uh-huh. And that was its topic. That was the topic of this specific style of painting, de castas. And um, we are usually taught that. Uh, right now, it, it could sound even kind of like a little, um, I don't know, incorrect politically, to teach that because it's literally like the epitomos of racism. Um, but that's how we are taught that in like, like as very small kids. Also, this um, have like very funny names sometimes because, you know, like all the different uh, variations that you were saying about like the African and the Asian um, people with the locals and with the criollos, like they're like very funny names like the salta patras, um, that means like jump back to where you were, uh, depending on how, how was the next generation mixed. Um, so those are like really, really funny, really funny way how it was um, portrayed, how, how the people from that era was uh, looking at it and how we are taught that in school nowadays. Not sure if that is happening um, now, but uh, I guess it is. It is still still taught like that. Um, now I think it's very interesting what you were saying also about like this how in, in the pre-colonial times it was very important like the arts in general for them. Um, we even had you know like the famous um, poet emperor Nezahualcoyotl and that um, so the, the arts were actually very very important part of of the Aztec world. And I think, as you say, that was used to the advantage of later to, you know, like expand on Christianity and how we look at it now. Now about all this, all this revival in, in Mexico, I think it was not only in Mexico, but like, I think like all over the world, how we um, at some point, like, I think like in the 80s, 90s, everyone was like, whoa, you know, and, and from the Middle Ages, that was like the Dark Ages, as they call it, but like the the production in arts is is incredible is amazing the way um i um started to listen to this kind of music is from this uh, spanish ensemble that is the uh, la capella real de catalunya with jordi sabal so this is for me like the most important group of them all because I, for me they are the ones who brought all this um early music to to our days mm-hmm. um they even have a record of just music from this side of the world from the viceroyalty of the new spain of peru and all everything that was happening in terms of music here and yeah i think from there i think we started exploring more the middle ages the renaissance the baroque 
because um, you know before I think it was like you know like Vivaldi and that's it that's all we know about it and <laughs> and now true, it's, it's uh -huh, now it's like way more interesting like the the sheet music that they're finding and um, the, all the research that is happening around that I think it's great that's happening right now and that we live in this moment in history that we can that we can use all that that is happening. Uh, yeah, so I would, you know, I haven't thought of the actual documents, the historical documents. And I mean, it's a great tool and a great uh, resource that we have the codices and the first-hand accounts, you know, like uh, these mm. men from the church that were like literally documenting these rapid death you know, or absorption of the indigenous world into the colonial societies. Mm. I mean, in one hand, we are thankful for their work. On the other hand, they were also responsible of killing off this civilization. So let's not, you know, it's not like, oh, yeah, they were great. Thank you, Priors, for <laughs> what <Yeah>. exactly? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but, it, but it's always very complex problem right because i think as you were saying we are we are a generation that it's a mix we are completely mixed unless you live like in a very remote part of a rural area of mexico then maybe the rest of us are completely a mix and we come in all different colors so yeah um i i don't think there was like you know like um this polarization i i quite don't like it because we're we're kids of all of them Actually. Yes, 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 yes. It's it's a different process uh, now that you mentioned, you know, how we uh, were taught, like at least you and I, how we were taught about the, the caste system. I don't think necessarily it was the education system saw that or teachers themselves saw that as negative. It was just exactly. how it was. Like uh, racism in Mexico is still prevailing. Yeah, I mean, it of happens. Mm -hmm. and, and because we didn't grow up questioning that for us, at least for us people in our 40s, <clears throat> for mm -hmm. you that are a bit younger, but you know, like for us, it's like... <laughs> almost like, almost we're, there. <laughs> we're, we, we have to, had to go through this process of distancing ourselves. Like, oh my yeah. God, this is not so okay. Uh -huh. like, this is wrong, actually. Yeah. Yeah, because it's it's so normalized that we have to work, you know, like towards something, and also because Mexico, um, it's not like the U.S., you know, that you have like your your big Asian colonies or your big a African colonies. We are all kind of mixed, so it's a little bit easier for racism to so like be there and not notice it. Yeah, yeah. But I think we are now actually like um, doing things actively about it and. And at least realizing it's happening yeah. and it's been happening for a very long time. And that in many cases we have been unknowing participants of of these, no? Because, like you say, colon Definitely. or like mm -hmm. the process of de uh, decolonization, which is like the sort of uh, contesting or challenging the the colonial structures in our minds, the ones that are like embedded in our culture. That takes a different mm -hmm. process. And like you say, it's not like the in the case of Mexico, it's a, a bit more complex because we can't we can't look in the mirror 
and distinguish what's indigenous and what's European and what's Asian and what's African, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so how can I decolonize yeah. myself? Uh, yeah. So it, uh-huh. it's not that we can't. It's, it's more than it's. A, it's a more. Uh, it's a different process. It goes deeper. It's cultural, mm-hmm. and I think things like you know turning to our our heritage, and in this case, you know, music heritage, art, mm-hmm. it sort of smooths things a bit and helps us take mm-hmm. a, a better distance and say like okay, we can begin by recognizing the diversity of artistic talent, no? And in sort of that line, mm-hmm. in, in, even in the very colonial period, I mean, we, we have this idea that it was Castilian, the language spoken in Castile, which is the one we speak in mm-hmm. Mexico, or Espanol, as we say now, mm-hmm. And it's, it's often thought that this was like the dominant language. And the truth is that is not really the case because there were many Portuguese people living in here at the time in the early mm-hmm. uh, years of, uh, and, you know, 100, 200 years of the of the Viceroyalty. And people even from all over uh, Spain spoke different regional languages uh, like, you don't know, Galician and Catalonian and any other kind of language. Mm-hmm. So not even, they didn't even share the same language. And obviously here, mm-hmm. we had 68 different cultural groups that spoke their languages and dialects. And so it's, it's nothing is that uniform, as you said earlier. So even the music reflected mm-hmm. maybe not every language, right? But at least they made sort of an effort yeah. in using here in New Spain different languages. So Latin was one of them, had, had been the lingua franca of the Roman Empire for a long, long time. And even though, you know, the Roman Empire fell in uh, the year 400, Latin still became like the official language in the Catholic Church. And it still is uh, for many, for many um, aspects of it. Uh, but they also included different languages that we're going to sort of touch back on that later. And another thing that was also used as a form of explaining without sharing the same language, you know, explaining the gospel mm-hmm. to people, which was something that for Spanish was very important. It was a, a tool that some friars developed, Franciscan friars particularly, that was called the missionary theater. And that became super popular in the colonial period, like really, really popular to the point, I guess, that some people enjoyed the representation and dramatization of religious passages, you know? Yeah, facilitate a little bit. So communicating some key ideas, at least, you know, this is bad, that is good, and this is punishable, and this will be <laughs> yeah, rewarded. So these, these uh, Franciscan friars, mm-hmm. particularly some Augustinians, started using this theater, mm-hmm. like, and using the local languages to write these little plays mm-hmm. for, for the community to see in something that we call uh, pastorelas. So why don't you mm-hmm. uh, talk about and expand on this? I think it's, it's, it's fair to say that this is not n- new from the theater. The theater has been doing this, you know, like since it was invented and since, you know, like the Greeks, this was one of their goals to educate people through um, theater. Even most of uh, Plato's um, uh, works are written in like a dialogue mm-hmm. um, that could be represented right in theater. So this is not new for theater. This is just like a new use that they were um, 
doing it with the religious message, right? This was also happening back in Europe. So maybe it was brought, of course, from there. Um, in Europe, there was this uh, genre of uh, theater that was called Autos Sacramentales that um, we had uh, Calderón de la Barca writing Autos Sacramentales, which was uh, that, right? Just like a moral lesson. Like, mm, like if I'm looking at this as a Catholic and I have a situation that's kind of similar to this, what should I do as a good Catholic, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, that's what kind of like what was brought here. Uh, representing sometimes passages of the Bible or like a situation, like a, what shall I do in this case? What uh, that we should do differently in a different way because, the, you know, like the Spanish came and now it's a viceroyalty and everything. So, yeah, I think it was like a very powerful tool. And yeah, well, it was more friendly than, you know, like what was happening before. And I guess it was, um, and it, it has something to do with what we were saying before that it was very violent, mm-hmm. but it was not only the Spaniards who did this to the uh, native people, and that's it. Like even like um, the Aztecs had a lot of enemies, yeah, and those enemies are actually the ones who fought against them because they wanted Tenochtitlan to to fall because they were you know like there was a lot of rivalries happening right there among the locals when the Spaniards came. And it's what I was saying, uh, that the, the problem was way more complex than it's usually portrayed, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it has it, it has something to do with that and, and the way it's, it's represented then and in the theater and how they were taught that things should be done differently after that. Yeah, yeah, it's so true. It's so true, rewinding a little bit. The tensions that were already here at the brink of chaos, I would say, uh, right before yeah. the Spaniards mm-hmm. arrived, like there were many tensions brewing already, like you say, because uh, the, the, oh, yeah. the Mexica mm-hmm. or Aztec Empire had spread a bit too much, a bit too aggressively, a bit too quickly. Mm-hmm. All these problems, like you said, facilitated the establishment of alliances. No one had a master plan. Of so, course. like you say, the mm-hmm. some of the biggest tribes that actually uh, actively sought to form this alliance uh, were my neighbors, <laughs> the people from Tlaxcala, <laughs> who, who were sworn enemies mm-hmm. of the Mexica, uh, you know, became big characters in this process. And they benefited a lot because they were able to preserve their land and their titles and gain control over nearby territories as well. And something very interesting mm-hmm. is that these people, the people from Tlaxcala, sort of returning to music, they were amazing musicians, like really, really mm-hmm. talented musicians. They made instruments. They they were great dancers. They were great, great singers. And I need something, an aspect we don't really think about. First, because we don't know mm-hmm. about it. And second, <laughs> there, there was all these discourse and sort of this narrative of Spaniards sort of viewing native cultures as brutish, as lacking of civilization and unable to have any sophisticated form of expression. But it's like a completely wrong idea of what really actually happened. Luckily, uh, there were some people, particularly some Spanish friars, clergymen, who who realized of Mm. this big vibrant culture that refused to die and they were like oh my god we should better uh, like feed you know this talent feed this need or else it's going to explode in in some other form right yeah so we have this guy called um fray pedro de gante 
who was really, really interesting because he was like this person who had a big vision to do things in a slightly different way. Like I said, sort of building on the things that were already there, supposed to just destroy. And in 1524, so just like three years after the, the fall of Tenochtitlan, the murder of the last emperor, burning the city. In Texcoco, so very close to the actual capital in a nearby lake, mm -hmm. he created one of the first music schools for indigenous boys. Mm -hmm. This is like amazing. Mm -hmm. So early in the colonial period, his community you know, were converting people into Christianity, into Catholicism. But it was this thing of also offering them the chance and opportunity to join this training and then be able to be part of different choirs in different parts of the city and churches and provinces. Mm -hmm. So this actually proved a very successful approach. Obviously, they had to learn mm. to read music the way Europeans wrote music. And I am absolutely unable to read any music <laughs> unlike you. Uh, so maybe you can help us. <laughs> like, uh, What was different and, and, yeah. and how did this process happen and also it's because of these documents that we are able to reproduce this music right mm -hmm. yeah um first of all i think we have to acknowledge that the way we see um the colonial music now it's just that it's a little bit of a work of imagination because you know we were not there mm -hmm. first yeah, of all yeah. Um, also, like, well, there are now a lot of different studies of this uh, of this stage in the music. Uh, first of all, we know that they were not playing at 440. Like right now, the, the note A is at 440. Mm -hmm. Now we know that they were closer to 410, 415. So it was a bit lower, okay. which is uh, like a completely different thing. It's, right. it's, it's a completely different music if you listen to it. So now a lot of um, different ensembles are, are specializing in this key, like going to that, and they tune their instruments in 415 just to be like a way closer to what it sounded back, back in the day. Also, um, I think it's good to know, like, because, you know, some people talk about the um, colonial times as if everything happened in a weekend, right? <laughs> yeah. And it was three 300 years. It was like a very, very long time. Um, historically, many different things happened, not only here, but all over the world. And um, just to put this in context, it was like, um, let's say like the, the end of the medieval age, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the Renaissance and the Baroque era. So um, ju just, you know, like to put that in context, what was happening, like, Let's say in Europe, um, there was William Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. um, so th th that kind of thing was happening mm -hmm. uh, just to know where we were historically and, and how the music would sound in that, in that moment. For me, it's very important what we were talking before about the, the languages. Now I'm now talking about what was happening here locally. My major in, 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 in university was literature and language sciences. So I'm kind of like a nerd of language. Yeah. And I'm very interested in what you were saying about, um, you know, like how um, the Spanish language, well, the Castilian language mixed with the local languages. And that's what we have now as our local accents, mm -hmm. right? Like if you listen to the um, someone speaking Nahuatl, then you are like, oh, that's where Chilango accent comes from, you know? It's, it's, it's quite similar. And then um, 
it also depended on what region of Spain the 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 Spaniards that were coming to that specific area, because as you know, we have many different you know like uh, regional terms. We call even even like the same food. Not that we both love food. Even the same food is um, called in a very different way in different places. And that modifies like everything that was happening here. The music, the food, everyday life, the way people spoke. And um, that's all an, an approximation of what we know what, what was happening, right? Uh, I think the same kind of happens in the Yucatan Peninsula. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you listen to someone speak a Maya Maya language and then you listen to someone from Merida, it's like, oh, okay, I see where your accent comes from, right? It didn't just happen just because, you know, it, there's there's something that took many, many years to take your accent and for you to speak the way you speak and you were the way you were taught to speak. It's it's very interesting how it happened uh, with the with the music. Um well of course there there was music in Latin. Um uh, also we have to remember that the use of Latin um was um very common in a religious context, uh, especially in Christianity. Mm-hmm. The mass was uh, actually in Latin until very recently, like a few centuries ago. Mm-hmm. It it was in Latin and then at some point they decided to change in, in one of these um, gatherings that the Pope and, their, and his friends have. <laughs> but um, that was like very recent, right? Uh, until very recently, the Mass was given in Latin. And most assistants had no idea what was happening, uh, what was being said, um, because only like a few uh, privileged people would know Latin. Mm-hmm. Some people would just memorize what they would have to answer at a certain moment, but not necessarily would know what was happening mm-hmm. and uh, also Latin in the music because it was common in the religious context of the time. Some uh, in Castilian, of course, it was the most common language. Um, also, we have some in uh, the um, native languages, uh, especially in, well, in this, in the New Spain, in Nahuatl, uh, there are also some um, pieces in the, like in the Quechua language, in the Southern um, Hemisphere and um also, uh, one one very interesting um, use of the language in this in this music is the use of dialects. Mm-hmm. There are specific um, songs. There's one um, that I quite like that's called Tarara, que yo soy Anton, that is um, written in this dialect that is how the Spaniards um, listened, thought that how it was, how they, uh, the Black, the African people right, spoke. Right, right the Castilian right. language. So they would, you know, like, um, they wouldn't um, use the final S. Mm-hmm. Um, they would change the R's for mm-hmm. L's. Then they would also use some kind of like mm-hmm. slang. If you read it, it's a, um, a little bit like the Caribbean accent. It sounds like it, and it kind of makes a mm-hmm. lot of sense because it's um, it comes a little bit from that because, you know, there was a lot of African population also in that area. It's, it's, it's very interesting how they were working with every resource they had available to, um, to just spread Christianity all over the, the new Spain. The lyrics of this piece, like Eliseo mentioned, imitate the inflections and accents of African Novo Hispanic people. And it's called Tarara, que soy yo, Anton, by Antonio de Salazar.
there's something we 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 haven't said, and it's the fact that here in Mesoamerica, languages did not have a written alphabet like most European languages, meaning that the way of mm-hmm. uh, uh, memorializing, like documenting things, use different resources, and, and this was uh, images through codices, mm-hmm. Uh, that were these documents with, with these drawings that represent, you know, complex ideas mm-hmm. that together narrate, you know, they tell us uh, the story of, of places, of particular mm-hmm. rulers, of events. But if you look at them, unless you know the actual sound of every symbol and how they sound together, you know, to understand these, these codices, you won't be able mm. to to make sense. And actually it took us a long, long time of Americanists working through not only the codices, but also carvings in stone in temples. Uh, mm. And one of the hardest examples uh, uh, it was uh, Mayan that, that you mentioned. It was very, very difficult to, to sort of crack, to understand this complex system of writing until they managed. But it was, again, these was ideas and these was concepts, not actual yeah. individual words and the sound of it. And that's why we have many examples of particularly letters that are very complicated, like the letter X. So if you don't know any Spanish, mm-hmm. you are in for a ride when it comes to written words of indigenous origin because the x like in xochimilco can sound like i can xochimilco or (laughs) in some cases sounds like Mm -hmm. like mexico although it's spelled like mexico so unless Mm -hmm. unless you grow up with (laughs) and anything in between it will be very hard to know because spaniards just really made up things like (laughs) like they wrote for the first time whatever they thought they heard and sometimes that's why the written words of indigenous origin just sound weird because no one had written them using using an alphabet yeah yeah, yeah, I think it's it's very interesting how, how you say it because um um the the way the the, the local languages mm-hmm. worked before the Spaniards came here is is very similar to let's say Asian kanji that the right. the, the written character is more an idea and it's not like a, literally a sound like like we speak Spanish now. It was more an idea, and depending on that, then it would mean this thing or another. And then how do you translate that? It's it's very difficult. It's it's a very difficult thing to, to do. And yeah, I think they would just, you know, like it sounds kind of like this, and let's just do it. Because of course, this was before we had, you know, like the standard phonetic language that we have now, like the international phonetic language that we can write um, um, specifically how it sounds um, independently of what language it is. So, um, of course, it's it's a very interesting how it worked and then how that evolved later. Yeah, and like you say, we have this amazing form of documentation of this process, which are songs that were written in local languages. Mm -hmm. So we have three examples that we're going to play in a little bit. Uh, One was uh, written by Gaspar 
Fernandez. So he was born in 1566 and died in, in 1629. And the song is written in Nahuatl and it's called Shikochi Konetzintle. You picked these two beautiful pieces, one by Hernando Franco, who was born in 1532. And it's also in Nahuatl and it's called Diositlazo Nancine, which of course it is written, is spelled in just however Spaniards managed to write it down. Uh, these two are uh, religious songs. And the third, uh, yeah. which I think is also religious because hashtag colonial period, <laughs> it is from a composer that actually lived in the vice royalty uh, of um, Peru, right? Mm -hmm. So he's written in, in Quechua and he's, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce it. And if you, if you, if you do the honors, I, I can't. Yeah. Anakpachap kusikwinin. There you go. <laughs> so we're going to play a little bit of these three pieces and uh, we're going to get back. This piece is called Shikoshi Konetzintle by Gaspar Fernandez and was written and performed in Nahuatl. From Juan Pérez de Bocanegra, we listen to a fragment of a song that was written and performed in Quechua language. Thank you. 
And last, the piece Itlazo Nancine by Hernando Franco that was written and performed in Nahuatl. So the last piece we just listened to, um, <clears throat> which is a very interesting version, uh, obviously chosen by Eliseo, and we were just gushing at, at the choice of instrument that this particular version has, because, of course, it's, it's so renaissance but it's indigenous renaissance. So why don't you tell us about the instruments that we have yeah. here? Yeah, I think it's it's very interesting how it starts with this. Um, it's pretty evident that these are native instruments, you know, like those, um, um, I think it's a, it's a drum. And then you have the, um, how it's called the other one with the... Teponaxtle. Teponaxtle, aha. And then the song starts and the melody itself, you can tell it's, it's a renaissance. First of all, and I think I'm I'm gonna go to a, a little bit to what we're gonna talk later, but um, you have first um, the soloist, mm -hmm. and then you have a choir that is divided in four voices. Um, this is the um, traditional way of dividing voices. I, I think since the Renaissance, in the medieval times, um, it, a different thing was happening. But from the Renaissance and um, and on after that. We have this separation, uh, usually four voices, soprano, alto, tenor, bajo. Mm -hmm. Soprano and alto are the female voices, the high and low female voices. Tenor and bajo are the male and um, high and low voices. And then with those four, you would create a certain melody and uh, all the harmony for the song with its um, tensions. Um, I think it's also very interesting to note that all the song is in Nahuatl, but of course there is no Nahuatl word for Dios, for God. So they just say yeah. Dios, Dios, itlazo nancine. And yes, then, and Jesucristo, course, right? Jesucristo. Because there's no other word for that. They, they didn't even try, you know, that's just that. Yeah, yeah. So it's very interesting how they were mixing those two. And in that way, it's pretty evident how, you know, like this is, a, with this song, what they're saying is this is an European concept mm -hmm. and you have to learn it this way. Right. You know, there's no local translation to that. This is uh, the the God that we're bringing to you. Um, so it's, it's very interesting. And of course, The, the lyrics, it's just about, um, uh, it's about the mother of God, like the Virgin Mary, you know, like this, intercede for us and, you know, like um, have a good word with your son about us and about how we behave, <laughs> of course. It's interesting, I think from here we can go to our to, to our next topic, which is like this, how this kind of music is, is organized. Um, this is uh, properly the Renaissance already when this was written. Mm -hmm. um, before that, the music was um, usually um, just one melody mm -hmm. or maybe two melodies that were complementing each other sometimes, um, especially in the late um, Middle Ages. Uh, mm -hmm. at, the, at the early Middle Ages, it was usually just one melody, you know, like this. Um, like Gregorian chant. Uh, exactly. It's it's like the perfect example for that. And then mm -hmm. as, because um, also the Middle Ages is another different era that people talk about. Like it's, it was a weekend again and it was like so <laughs> many centuries. It was a like a thousand so, years, so literally. Long. Yeah, literally a thousand years. Can you imagine the, the generations that 
lived through all that time. Then I think like in terms of music, the main difference from the Middle Ages is that we started having polyphony. Polyphony means that we start having more voices, the harmony gets a little bit more more complex. That's how it is usually sung. From there, it's going to also evolve a little bit more towards the Baroque era, because in the Baroque era, it's all about the um, exaggeration, right? Taking everything mm-hmm. like to the edge. Everything has to go to the to the last consequences, <laughs> over the top. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So um, let's say in the in the Renaissance it was happening, and then in the Baroque, uh, maybe you have this um, song that is composed for three different choirs, and each one of them has like not four, but maybe like six different melodies and all of them are going to interact at the same time. Um, there are a lot of uh, different um, examples for this, but um, it was also used here in the music that was happening here in um, mm-hmm. the Vice Royalty of the New Spain. And it's, it's, it's very interesting how it works. Also, there are very, like a lot of different resources in the Renaissance, um, especially vocally, because since I'm a singer, that's mm-hmm. the, the most interesting to me. Uh, one of them is that usually the voice mm-hmm. is mimicking what is happening um, with the lyrics. Uh-huh. So let's say if if um, the lyrics are talking about, I don't know, like a river that is um, flowing, mm-hmm. then the melody would do something to illustrate that, how it's how it's happening. Why don't you give us an example, a quick example of that? Oh, I know which one. Um, Sagales o Islas Ansias Mias supposedly was part of a big um, theatrical piece, but this um, there was just only like one aria found of the entire opera. It was actually found in the Cathedral of Puebla. So in this song, the voice is just uh, mimicking what the, the lyrics are saying. Um, so at some point, it's talking about the wind, how it runs. El, el viento que corre. So it goes up and then goes down, 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 down to illustrate how that is happening. Then um, it says about a flower that breathes. So you, the, the um, sheet music asks the singer to stop for a second and breathe. So it says, la flor que respira. And then it continues singing. But you have to breathe in the middle of the word. Um, then also later, it's talking about a bird that is doing a, a, a thrill. It's singing in the back. And then it asks the singer to do the thrill. The thrill is a, is a resource that is a very used in the Baroque era. And it's just playing two notes super, super, super quickly as much as they kind of sound like it's just one note or like a very quick vibrato. Ah, Then a little bit quicker. Ah, And then like super quick. Ah, And in this song, it's El Ave Catrina. The voice is mimicking what the bird is singing. It's not only illustrating, but it's 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 emphasizing the drama in the song and the conflict because because like this song it's talking about this guy who just had his heart broken <laughs> so everything is just illustrating and giving a strength to that conflict so it's a, it's a really really cool really cool song 
And usually the um, Baroque plays with these kind of resources all the time. It's a, it's a very interesting era for for music, especially well, all music, but my my specialty, which is vocal music, I, I quite enjoy playing songs of this period. This is Sagales Oid Las Ansias Mias, composed by Abate de Rusi and performed by Eliseo Lara. Triste compañía, al sonoro murmurio, la dulce armonía que forma en la selva, el ave que trina, la fuente que corre, la flor que respira. Because it really, like you say, you know, the the whole drama, and and if you are performing that, presumably mm-hmm. also, you do like a, a a very theatrical performance of it. You no, know? uh, I can imagine perfectly the singer just like yeah. opening the arms <laughs> or sort of clenching the fists and feeling the pain, and the audience is like, Argh! you know, like yeah. feeling everything. <laughs> Baroque Adele. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so and also, I, I have prepared another example, and that is again from Peru, because we shared many similarities with different uh, colonies and different kingdoms, also that, that had similar processes, of course. So there is a very interesting document that is a codex called the Trujillo Codex, also known as the Codice Martinez Compañón. This uh, Codice is interesting in many ways, but particularly because it's mainly about music. So this is absolutely groundbreaking and different to most of the codices that we have in New Spain. So it has music sheets. And also it has these beautiful paintings that detail the costumes and the choreographies and even like the stage So there are nine volumes of this uh, document, which is massive. And, and it's, uh, it was finished around the, the 1780s. I chose a song that is called Cacho Serranita. Actually, I think it, it illustrates very nicely what you were explaining to us, the different voices that interact together, even though it's saturated, they complement each other very, very, very nicely.
So you were really uh, giving us a fantastic introduction to this very, very evocative music. Some can be super dramatic, like like the one you you helped us deconstruct a little bit, and then this other one from from the Codice Trujillo, which is just like you know makes you want <laughs> to get up and start dancing. You no, know? it's so contagious, so emotional, so provocative. One of the songs that that I, I want to play next, it, it, it talks also about the emotionality, uh, you know, in in like the the problems that everyday people had. While this was a very religious society, that was not really the the only thing that people you know were worried about. Like you said, people got their heart broken, people fell in love, people people yeah wanted to to party. <laughs> the song we will listen again by Gaspar Fernandez. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite composers, sorry. And this song is called La Solfami Re, otherwise known as the bread song. <clears throat> and, and the lyrics just say, well, is this person worrying about like, what if what if I run out of bread tomorrow? What am I going to eat? And, and then this other person, other voice saying, well, don't worry, God is going to provide. And I promise you, you won't run out of bread. And he's like, no, but I am running out of bread. Like, well, this is a real problem for me. Mm. Uh, and, and there's this very interesting interaction of the voices. So why don't you help us understand uh, what, how these voices were classified? You um, mentioned a little bit about, you know, female and male voices. But then why don't you uh, tell us about your own voice and what kind of music uh, would your voice be uh, perfect for in this context? Um, well, I am I am a tenor. Pretty evident my, my voice is kind of like in the high high range but in the um well first about this specific type of music where it's i quite like it when two different voices are in this argument which is usually like a very heated argument is is very used in this in this moment of the history of music which i quite enjoy because as we said before the music in this era is very theatrical right there are like a lot of emotions it's very intense and of course, having two two people fighting, who wouldn't want to hear that, right? <laughs> so it's chisme. So chisme is always good. So <laughs> so it's a it's a it's a resource during all the all this the Baroque era. Now, usually in the history of music, not only this era, but throughout the history of music, usually high voices have been privileged. Mm -hmm. So, you know, usually like if you have an opera, mm. uh, the main character is usually a soprano mm. or a tenor. It's very difficult to find like a, a, a main character that is a contralto mm -hmm. or, um, or a basso. It's very, very difficult Um and usually these other, the lower voices are composed to make the other one kind of like shine, mm -hmm. right? Um, this is if there's like a soloist. Mm -hmm. okay. and now, if it's a choir or something with like a more elaborate um, harmony, then we're talking about a different things. And um, let's say like the Diositlaso song that we listened to earlier if you listen to it closely, of course, it has the uh, soprano soloist at the beginning of the song. Mm -hmm. But then ev every good um, song composed for four voices should have a moment where one of them 
has a, a moment to shine. Okay, yeah. Right? Yeah. So you can you can hear like it, it maybe the melody gets tense and the contralto goes a little bit mm-hmm. um up and it's it's that it's that harmony that is making the entire thing work and it's giving tension mm-hmm. to all of it. Um or maybe suddenly there's like a, a, a it slightly changes for a few com- for a few um compasses the um, harmony the basso mm-hmm. and then the entire thing changes um now it's also um important to note that um we do have usually the written sheet music for all four voices but not always for the instruments mm-hmm. The way we play now the baroque and um, and the uh, renaissance music it's it's I think it's closer to jazz. We reimagine things. Yeah, cuz we have usually just maybe the line of the main um harmony which is the the basso, mm-hmm. the lowest instrument you have. Mm-hmm. And then from there we have to imagine what was happening oh. up there. Um so it's it's quite similar to jazz in in a way yeah. that you have this bass yeah. and then you build around You're improvising, it. Improvising, yeah. um, but uh-huh. unless it's you know like a big opera and then you have the entire uh, sheet music and it, it it came to us already like that. Mm-hmm. But for these pieces and especially this, you know, like the hard to find music and um, especially in this in this moment and place in the vice royalty mm-hmm. of the new Spain. Um, if you're lucky, you will have only the the lowest uh, the lowest bit of the harmony, yeah. and that's all you have. So all the rest of the instruments will have to build around that. And usually, the way um, the ensembles work is that they would have like let's say like a main instrument, which is usually a lute, mm-hmm. a baroque guitar, mm-hmm. sometimes maybe a theorb if you're lucky. To have one, then you have usually your violins, maybe like a flute. Usually most of this is just built all from how you would imagine this would have sound and in back in the day. La sol fa mi re, si el pan se me acaba que comeré. This was a fragment of the song La Solfa Mirre by Gaspar Fernández from the album Música Virreinal Mexicana by the Mexican ensemble Ars Nova. It's a song we, we both really, really, really love and it's super fun and, uh, and we hope you have enjoyed it as well. I'm just trying to think like recipes before they were recipes the way we know them today. These were just notes, but they didn't really have all the steps broken down the way we do today. You know, the sequence number one, number two, number three. So is this the case uh, that 
music writers were writing these for an already experienced group of musicians. It's like, they will know, they will know how to improvise. It's going to be insulting for them if I tell them what to do because they know what to do and they know where where to come in, where to experiment, where to add some frills and you know this and that and more instruments and whatever. Like I don't need to tell them that. They just need to know, like you say, the baseline and of course the words, right? That's it. Yeah. Is that the case you think? Yeah, I think it's it's very similar to what you yeah. And I've experienced that with the recipe. And <laughs> yes. Sometimes if it's, you know, like if it's a baking recipe, I usually know what I'm going to do, even if just looking at the list of ingredients. But sometimes with some recipes, it's like, seriously, that is all you're giving me? <laughs> That's all I have? And I guess it was like a very similar process for musicians back in the day because they would know um, what to do. Like right. I'm giving you the, I'm giving you like this uh, tonality. This is the tone. This is what we're going. And mm -hmm. from there, you know what to do. So I guess it was like a very similar, similar thing. Yes. And, you know, speaking of food, uh, <laughs> it's also kind of difficult to piece together the history of what people actually ate, what people liked eating, mm -hmm. who ate what. And it's difficult for several reasons, because historians for a long time, literally until very recently, 20th century, uh, didn't think of food as a worthy subject to write about. And whenever we have the topic of food coming up uh, in, in historical documents, it's usually because of economic history, just that, you know, uh, surveying, production, things like that. And, and in the case of very wealthy people or important people, right, people of certain status, then we know things about their diet, you know, the kind of food that they they would consume or that was available in the time. But for everyday people, we don't know. Thankfully, from the colonial period, also another creative expression was painting. And of course, painting is a great topic for podcasts because you, <laughs> you can't see what <laughs> we're talking about. But let's just say that there was this genre called uh, costumbrismo, or like everyday life painting, gives us very rich sources of information about how people lived, like how their kitchens looked, how their intimate spaces looked like, what kind of foods did they eat. And we have certain uh, authors, certain painters, like Apoblano, <laughs> uh, Agustina Rieta. Well, I say Poblano. He was born in Tlaxcala, but Tlaxcala was part of Puebla. So uh, he, he he painted a lot of very famous scenes of cooks interacting in the kitchen, and you you can see like the the crockery uh, and the layout of the kitchen, uh, the type of, of fruits of foods. So it's, it gives us a lot of information. But then there's many other things that also give us information about life in this in this period that comes from literature. And of course, I mean, you studied literature, you have a particular expertise in this period. Uh, I don't I don't really want to to spoil much. So, well, she's one of our favorite characters uh, in history, and she <laughs> is none other than uh, Inés de Astuaje y Ramírez de Santillana later known as Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, who is a very complex uh, 
character, she was a woman absolutely different from any other woman of her period because women only had two choices in life, getting married and have lots of babies or uh, become a nun and that was it. And she was like, I'm having none of that actually because I want an education and if the price of education is joining a nunnery, I'm going to join, but I'm not going to join to pray. I'm going to join to learn. She earned her place in history and she developed a very unexpected interest in food. It was more because uh, circumstances presented themselves, not that she really cared about that. Uh, but she found like, oh, finally, if you're going to leave me alone, <laughs> if I say I'm going to cook and I can think, fine, I will cook. So she found herself sort of a, a reluctant um, philosopher uh, in the kitchen, <laughs> she said. I just want to say that uh, you studied in a, in a historical property that it was one of her late spaces where she lived and later became a university, La Universidad del Claustro de Sor Juana. So why don't you tell us more about her, <laughs> about her work? Um, well, she was born in the um, 17th century. That is important because we are officially like in the Baroque era, right? So that was her context. The Viceroyalty of the Tune Spain had already gone through a lot of, a lot of different things. And it was like, mm -hmm. she lived like quite like in the middle of it, right? It's a very important character, as you say. For me, it's all about all that thirst for knowledge that she had. So apparently she was born in kind of like mm -hmm. a privileged situation. Her family had, you know, like a, some kind of money. And then she got into this mm -hmm. um, cloister. That is the, um, the uh, place where I... Uh, went to college. This is a place where she was um, encloistered back in the day. Um, so this order of nuns apparently um, couldn't leave, mm -hmm. depending on how privileged you were, right? And it's a, it's a very interesting place. Um, well, first, because it's in Centro Historico, in like right downtown area of mm -hmm. Mexico City, which is always interesting. So the the place has this um the mm -hmm. proper um church. The church does have an entrance yeah. that is from the street. So people um uh, wealthy people could go to this church and uh, listen to their mass. And the nuns could be behind and people wouldn't be able to see them. They would mm -hmm. be um mm -hmm. like hidden in a different place. And then behind, but above, there is a place where the choir was supposed to, to be okay. back in the day. Let's remember, there was usually music, uh, live music in this in this um, religious ceremonies. She wrote a lot, like a lot. She, she was writing, um, especially poetry, but also philosophy, nonfiction. I'm not sure if our audience is familiar with how famous she is, but she's like really famous. She's in our, in our mm -hmm. 200 pesos bill. She's, she's that, that famous. So, so most people recognize her from her poetry work, uh, love, sonnets, like there's the famous one, Al que ingrato me deja busco amante, which is uh, one where, you know, like, I love you, but you don't love me. Yeah, the same but drama. there's someone who loves me and I don't love him and all that mess that's happening ever since and it will still be happening. <laughs> it's really well written. She also has mm -hmm. a couple of theatrical plays, which are mm -hmm. a lot of fun. 
Um, it's comedia de enredos, so it's um, a comedy where you yeah, know, like, like a comedy of errors, right? Yeah, exactly, it's exactly a comedy of errors. But for me, her her most important work is El Primero Sueño, which mm -hmm. is a long poem. Let's remember that in this moment, uh, poetry had very specific forms that should be followed, mm -hmm. right? Like a sonnet, it has a determined number of um, lines mm -hmm. and they should rhyme in a certain way. Yeah, yeah. If I remember correctly, this one is, it's a little bit closer to what we know now as poetry because it's more like free form. Now, it's not easy to read this. Like, even if your first language is Spanish, it's definitely not easy to read this because um, let's say if you read Shakespeare and your English is your first language, you will have a hard time reading Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, first of all, it, the English of Shakespeare is not the same English as the one that is spoken today. Mm. There are a lot of different words. With Sor Juana, since she's already in the Baroque era, order of the sentence is so messed up. <laughs> it's like so difficult. You have to find the 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 subject. You have to find the verb. It it takes a while just to order the sentence. How it's because she might start in a complement and then go mm -hmm. to the verb and then go back with a different complement. And then at the end of the sentence, she will say who is doing that. Right. Um, so it's kind of difficult just to order the sentence. And then from there, you would have to know a lot of different things. You would have to know the different terms that she was mm -hmm. using that maybe are not the same as the Spanish that we speak today. And the references, right? Also the references, because it's the Baroque era, so you would need a, a lot of reference from the Bible. It's a little bit complicated, but once you get there, like this epiphany is totally worth it, and it's so cool. <laughs> um, the main um, subject of El Primero Sueño, um, I think it was translated as First I Dream, which is also controversial because it can be translated as first I dream or as first dream. It can be both. She's going to sleep. She mentions something about food. So it's if you think about it, it's kind of like a food comma, <laughs> which is that created all that is going to be happening next. In this very long poem, she asks herself if one person can get to know and appreciate everything there is mm. to know. It's a very complex, of course, poem, but eventually when she's about to find out, she wakes up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all, all the path to get there is very interesting. How she asks herself all these mm. things, how she goes through all that dream. Also, because this was a woman in the 17th century, right? Because this was uh, something that, of course, mm -hmm. a man could ask, but how about a woman? That was unthinkable, right? I think she yeah, broke yeah. a lot of rules, same reason for which she had like many different problems. Actually, some religious authorities wouldn't want her to be part yeah. of, of the church that she was part of. And she was quite famous, but even a lot of her texts were set to music by different composers, not only in the New Spain, but also in different places of the Americas. She also had like a very close relationship with food. She writes a lot about food as, as she sees that all knowledge is worth it and food food was definitely a part of that yeah. let's not forget that cooking in these cloisters was very common and is, is still very common nowadays for nuns many yeah. of our desserts nowadays come from these cloisters such as gaznates mm -hmm. that i quite enjoy but i think also she really resented cooking like i said like it's something she 
actually came to like yeah. and enjoy uh-huh. and, and embrace. But it was part of a duty. Like they had yeah. to cook. Like they had to remind her. Yeah. Hey, Sor Juana, you're not here, you know, just to indulge in your reading. You yeah. actually have to like pray and yeah. like be part of this community. Although she was, like you said, very privileged. She had her own slave, yeah. uh, a black woman she owned. And she had like an apartment. We're not talking about a poor nun sleeping on a hard yeah. bed. This is... Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. This is a very privileged yet contained, yeah. you know, kind of kind of existence. Yeah, but like her social position was very, very privileged. She actually had like a really close um, relationship with the vice um, royals. Like she mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. part of the society. Uh, people would know her. You mentioned, and we'll be talking a little bit uh, um, about food and, and Sor Juana's relationship to food. So in one of these occasions where, where Sor Juana is forced to take on cooking and she actually discovers that she enjoys it and she is actually quite good at it. So she put together uh, 36 recipes in, in, in one little book that gives us just a little glimpse also of the culinary transformation, you know, that this world is still experimenting, even if it's like the middle of the, like a very established colonial society. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit of the of the last days of Sor Juana. Yeah, um, well, the, her final days were actually in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> so it was like a very difficult situation, I guess, because she was also in a cloister. So it was kind of like a controlled space. But of course, let's say if a nun would get sick, a doctor could come in. So there was some access to the exterior world after all. This particular pandemic hit a very hard in the Convento de San Jerónimo, which is this place where she was. Um, apparently she was invited to leave the convent before this would all get out of hand. She wouldn't want to. She would just stay and take care of her um, sisters. And then she um, passed away, I think, at the end of the 17th century, right? On 1695, at a very young age. She was 46. 46. Super young. Yeah, she was super (laughs) young. (laughs) Yeah, she's apparently buried in the same place. Uh-huh. But of course, there are like hundreds of nuns who are buried there, so they wouldn't know which one was her. So that's how she finished her days in a pandemic. So terrible. 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 So relatable. This was Por Celebrar del Infante, a musicalized poem by Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. I've been talking about baking traditions in previous recent episodes and in the podcast, episode 74. We have had sort of many different stages in the evolution of our baking traditions. First, 
I think it's important to mention that there was not a big sweet baking tradition in colonial Mexico. There were some pastries, but it wasn't a thing to go overboard with, with cakes or pastries. However, we did have a very, very, very rich confectionery, like, like handmade sweets created in this period at, at nunneries, at these cloisters. Sweet forms of baking actually are a much more recent phenomena, like a 19th century phenomena, when Mexico, now an independent nation, embraces sort of this new uh, transition to a modern world that is very aspirational, trying to emulate Europe, trying to welcome different big baking traditions, uh, repertoires. So French baking, Austrian patisserie, Swiss. Uh, and there's actually this period of, of economic bonanza in this 19th century now under the, the rule of Porfirio Diaz, when, when many investors from Europe start coming to Mexico and opening bakeries, cafes, creating all these amazing spaces. And people are, for the first time, actually, like the elites are exposed and the middle classes are exposed to these amazing cakes, desserts and, and, and patisserie. And they're like, just like absolutely enamored. I, I will let you do the actual technical talking of these, how it changed, like what kind of techniques were introduced, because also you trained professionally to be a master baker and expert in, in fine patisserie, no less. <laughs> yeah, I have many different interests, <laughs> but um, baking and music go together for me. It's, it's very important to note that like the industrialization of the world is happening and then all these different ingredients are becoming available because before that, um, let's say like refined sugar was very difficult to find, even like a refrigeration. Of course, there was not at all. Things are changing and are changing like really quickly. And that made the um, all the baking industry change completely. In in the old times, like like let's say in the medieval times that you would make your bread at home and then bring it to the town open to bake it and then bring it back. That was like a very basic thing in Europe. It's very interesting how it mixed here with the local foods mm -hmm. and all the local ingredients because, of course, we had no wheat before the Spaniards came. In this moment, like at the end of the 19th century, let's say, a lot of different ingredients are becoming available. And also we are looking at the beginning of the mass production of everything, right? It's funny how you, how you can find such different traditions in our baking. Because mm -hmm. let's say a lot of different, very famous pastries that we have now started like in that moment, right? Anything from, let's say, orejas... Um, which are the French palmier, um, mm -hmm. even the cuernitos that we call them, the French croissant, pinoiseries. Even, I think, conchas must have something to do with that because um, the topping that conchas have mm. is very similar to the capelin that goes on top of the parachute. It's basically the same thing. So um, I think it must come from there. I've You don't know how much research I've done around conchas. <laughs> and I haven't found it exactly where it comes from there's an identical bread in japan yes out of all places the melon pan i know i know uh -huh. I like very similar things in in europe as i said this the parachute with the topping is very similar but we make it with yeasted dough which is completely different to parachute also the way we make bread is is very different now because of the um 
yeast available, not only the sugar available, because before, mm -hmm. you know, like sugar is actually like a very recent ingredient also. But yeah, it's interesting, of course, also like butter, like you would need a fridge to store that. I was just thinking that before the use of butter, lard would have been this amazing, gorgeous ingredient yeah. that will emulsify our doughs yeah. and, and, and make them make them soft and, and give it these, these lardy, yeah. rich, deep flavor. Mm -hmm. And we love them. Yeah. We love them because, you know, that's also a very important ingredient that has survived from the colonial period, this use of lard. So there's this distinction between also working class bread that is usually lardy mm -hmm. and then the more refined it will use like you say butter or mm -hmm. you mentioned industrialization margarine exactly and what i like now is that you can use each one of these for a different thing depending on your taste mm -hmm. let's say when i make conchas sometimes um a lot of people like even hear lard and are like oh i don't want to need that and I don't want to eat that, you know, like I quite like lard in my conchas. Maybe sometimes I do a mix of, um, you know, like butter and lard. Um, but let's say also butter is amazing for, uh, let's say, viennoiseries or a croissant because you have that nice mm. texture that um, has butter at a low temperature and that completely different flavor. So, yeah, yeah it's... A, what I like about that is that you can just mix and match with what you want and what you need for that specific mm -hmm. baking item and then just, you know, like play with them. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I quite I quite like that the use of lard in, in baking. But a lot of people are like, oh, seriously, we're gonna we're gonna need that <laughs> into our breast. Squimish, come on, people, <laughs> come on, live a little. You've been very active during the pandemic, bless you. I mean, <laughs> prior to the pandemic, you, you had a very um, active period doing in-person classes, right? At your home in, in, in Mexico City and even even abroad, no? Well, you've been traveling, you've been busy taking our amazing uh, breads far and wide. <laughs> and thank you for that, of course. <laughs> Uh, but then the pandemic arrives, right? And then you decide to start baking, but just not baking anything Mexican traditional pastries. What has been the response? I think I've, I've been very lucky because um, when I started doing my in-person classes, most of my guests uh, were um, Mexican-Americans visiting Mexico City. Right. And I I love that. And I feel quite honored, honestly, because... Well, first of all, I think it's great. You're you're looking your identity via food. I think that's a great thing to do. Food is also very connected to our memories, and um, so it's, I think that's a great thing. But then that they would come to my um, house and uh, spend an afternoon with me, and we would make bread from scratch. I started just with conchas, mm -hmm. just because you know conchas is. What's this song, Concha? Love staple. They don't need no introduction. <laughs> yes. And I think it's also maybe the most representative bread in Mexico. You can find it like from Tijuana to Cancun. If there's one bread you're going to find, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's going to be Conchas. And also it's very well known in the U.S. 
And then uh, when I um, transitioned to my online classes, I was thinking like it was great hosting mm -hmm. all these concha classes, but I was like, okay, this is a great opportunity for me to teach yeah. many different things. But of course, my specialty is Mexican bread mexican pastries so i could you know like expand my repertoire and it's like okay here i go that is leches cake and many different breads uh, i'm also very lucky that we live in a country where bread is mm -hmm. so varied apparently france is of course a country with the mm -hmm. biggest variety of breads and right after france it's mexico it's just like so many variations like let's say mm. just conchas You have conchas, you have them in different flavors, and you have limas, which is covered with a lime zest, calvos, which is covered in chocolate, and chilindrinas, nubes, is presented in a different way. And I think also we live in a moment where there's a lot of experimentation happening around bread and pastries, especially in Mexico. It's been a wild ride, but it's been like really enjoyable. I have it, I think, like a nice baking group. Now a lot of them know each mm -hmm. other. And I, I quite enjoy it. It has made you grow a lot as a baker. Like I can see, I remember now we had conversations like, I don't know, it's going to be different. It's not the same. You really build your community. You keep growing it. And I think that's absolutely amazing. So what are the plans for future classes? Are you having a busy calendar for the end of the year and the next year? Yes, December is is very exciting. I have many many classes planned. Of course, I'm going to start with Mexican cookies because it's the season for cookies. The winter is coming. We want marranitos de piloncillo, we want polvorones. I'm also going to have um three different versions of Rosca y Reyes. Um all of them equally delicious, but I went from like the very simple traditional rosca de reyes mm -hmm. so like a chocolate hazelnut kind of like ferrero rocher <laughs> kind of thing oh, la, la. i'm also going to start with some classes that we're going to make a complete dish not only the bread Ooh. so i'm going to start with uh, pambazos we're going to make the bread from scratch the salsa uh, salsa roja for the pambazos salsa verde for the filling that is chilango chilango pambazos Sí. Ajá, ya, ya, exacto. Ya, of course. Well, I'm chilango. Because <laughs> I'm poblana. We have pambazos, but they're different, right? So, yeah. <laughs> different, different way, yeah. Um, you know, bush de noel, because mm -hmm. it's Yummy. Christmas. Yeah. I'm going to have a Rudolf Conchas class, which are going to be fun. Of course. And, uh -huh. yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep doing the classes, the, the online classes every weekend or every other weekend. Mm -hmm. at least for the first quarter of 2022. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to resume also my in-person classes, I right. think, this December. So I'm very I'm very yeah. excited about that. I really miss my in-person classes a lot. Having, having people home. Mm -hmm. So why don't you give us your contact details? So, I mean, we're going to put them also on the notes of the, of the episode. Uh, but where can people find out about uh, you and about uh, your classes? Yes. Um, so I'm on Instagram as Eliseo Lara, Eliseo with a C, and everything mm -hmm. together, Eliseo Lara. Um, my website where you can book my classes is mexicanbaking.com. And I usually post my classes there. You can also on my website subscribe to my newsletter to know more about the classes. Mm-hmm book in advance and everything. Eliseo, 
obviously we could carry on talking for days right we could talk more about music and more about art and more about literature so, so maybe you know we should do a, a get together sometime next year thank you so much i'm really grateful for you to make all this time just you know talk about the things we love and um, i admire you and i'm very happy that you were here in the last episode of the year Yeah, no, I'm I'm honored to be on the last episode on the year and muchísimas gracias. Thank you so much to you for for having me. I love your your podcast. It's it's my go-to podcast for baking, so I'm honored to be here. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to listen to yourself next time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and well, friends, you will find all the links and all the songs and you will be able to listen to your favorite baker singing how amazing is that <laughs> and and that's it so uh bye bye little muchas gracias bye bye Thank you for listening. This episode was produced and presented by me, Rocío Carvajal, and the joint research was done with Eliseo Lara. To learn more about contextual information about some of the topics we talked about today, check out episode 74 of the show, where I explore the history of bread and baking in colonial Mexico. In episode 68, I talked to Dr. Alberto Peralta de Legarreta, and we discussed in depth religious societies of men and women in the colonial period, their impact in society, and the characteristics of these groups. And in a special blog post, I have put the names and links of all the pieces that we played today, plus uh, two book recommendations. One is Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, Selected Works, that's in English, and another book called Casta Painting, Images of Race in 18th Century Mexico. Last year, I came up with the idea of making a Christmas catalogue, which really is a curated list of gastronomic books and also featured Latinx-owned small businesses. Well, I decided to continue this year and have updated the catalogue, adding more recommendations and featuring other small businesses because I truly believe in the power of supporting each other and creating networks to champion great initiatives. And you can download your free copy of this catalogue by clicking the link on the description of the episode or from my Instagram, where I will keep it all December. Well, this year was no less challenging than the previous. I am incredibly happy and grateful to have brought more stories to you on this podcast, which I hope to continue doing for a long, long time. That's it for today and for this year, my friends. Happy holidays to you all. Merry Christmas. Feliz Navidad. Until the next time. <laughs>